Hey everyone, and welcome back to episode 7 of Quick Cuts, a Plastic Surgery Podcast. Today's episode is going to be the first in a two-part series on blepharoplasty. We'll start this week with upper lid blepharoplasty, and next week move on to lower lid blepharoplasty. And I want to first start with a point of clarification. Upper lid blepharoplasty is a surgery performed to address excess skin of the upper lid, which we refer to as dermatocolasis. Blepharoplasty is not a surgery intended to treat ptosis of the eyelid, which is referred to as blepharotosis. So today's discussion will focus primarily on blepharoplasty as intended to treat dermatocolasis. With that said, we'll begin a review of upper eyelid anatomy. The upper eyelid is commonly described as a bilamellar structure, consisting of anterior and posterior lamellae separated by the orbital septum, which you may or may not hear referred to as the middle lamella. The structures found within each lamella vary somewhat depending on which segment of the eyelid you're examining. The pretarsal segment of the lid exists from the lash line to the superior border of the tarsal plate. From superficial to deep, the layers of the pretarsal lid are skin and orbicularis muscle, which together make up the anterior lamella, followed by the tarsal plate and conjunctiva, which constitute the posterior lamella. The remaining segment of the eyelid extending superiorly from the upper border of the tarsus to the lid-brow junction is referred to as the preceptal segment. In this segment, the skin and orbicularis muscles still make up the anterior lamella, but here, the orbital septum and orbital fat pads now separate the anterior and posterior lamellae. There are two distinct fat pads in the upper lid, both deep to the orbital septum, and these are the central and nasal fat pads. Of note, the medial palpebral artery is present within the nasal fat pad and can be a source of bleeding during blepharoplasty. Deep to the septum and fat pads in the preceptal segment is the posterior lamella, which from superficial to deep consists of the levator palpebrae superioris muscle and its aponeurosis, followed by the superior tarsal muscle, referred to as Mueller's muscle, and finally the conjunctiva. We'll talk next about evaluation and management of the blepharoplasty patient. You should start by identifying the patient's primary concerns, which can be related to aesthetics or visual obstruction. You should take a thorough ophthalmologic history, including any prior eye or periorbital surgeries, as well as any history of visual disturbances or dry eyes. LASIK within the past six months is a specific contraindication for blepharoplasty, as this temporarily diminishes the corneal blink reflex. You should also pay particular attention to medical conditions or medications that increase bleeding risk, such as poorly controlled hypertension or blood thinners. On physical exam, you should document baseline visual acuity as well as ocular motility. If a patient is seeking blepharoplasty due to excess skin-causing visual impairment and will require insurance coverage for the surgery, visual field testing should be performed as part of the workup. On focused exam of the upper lid, you should evaluate both the eyelid and the brow. Although we won't discuss brow lift in today's podcast, it is important to recognize that brow ptosis can confound your exam findings. Blepharoplasty without identifying and addressing brow ptosis can actually exacerbate the ptosis. Your exam of the lid should assess for excess skin, fat herniation, lacrimal gland prolapse, and the presence and height of the supratarsal crease. It's also important to identify eyelid ptosis, which can be assessed using margin reflex distance 1, or MRD1. The MRD1 is a measurement of the distance from corneal light reflex to the lid margin. Remember that as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, blepharoplasty is not intended to treat blepharotosis, and this instead requires a formal ptosis operation, which can be performed simultaneously with blepharoplasty. For patients with history or exam findings suggestive of dry eyes, 
a Schirmer test can be considered to formally assess tear production. In regards to surgery, a variety of operative techniques have been described for upper lid blepharoplasty, and detailed description is beyond the scope of the podcast. However, recent upper blepharoplasty techniques generally involve an excision of excess skin from the lid with minimal or no excision of orbicularis oculi muscle. Preservation of orbital volume has similarly become a focus of surgical approaches, with general preservation of the orbital fat and in some cases even fat grafting to augment volume. Postoperative care involves the use of cool compresses to reduce bruising and swelling, as well as lubricating drops for dry eye prevention. In regards to complications, one of the most significant early complications of blepharoplasty is retrobulbar hematoma, which can lead to vision loss if untreated. As a result, this requires emergent decompression, which is most commonly achieved with lateral canthotomy and cantholysis. Another complication of upper blepharoplasty is lag ophthalmos, or inability to completely close the eye. Patients may experience mild transient lag ophthalmos postoperatively due to edema, however persistent lag ophthalmos may result if over-resection of the skin is performed during surgery. Additional complications to be aware of include but are not limited to corneal abrasions, dry eye, infection, eyelid hematoma, and chemosis. And that ends our discussion on upper lid blepharoplasty. Thanks for listening into the podcast. Feel free to subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. If you have questions, suggestions, or feedback, you can reach me at jakemarksmd at gmail.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at jakemarksmd. See you next time.